Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you by your Spirit and we come in the name of your Son. We pray that you would take your word as it is being read and as it's being taught, Lord. And we pray that your voice would be heard, that people would not merely hear my voice, but that your voice would speak not just merely to our ears, but to our hearts. Lord, we need to hear from you and we pray, God, that you would speak. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this has been an Easter like no other. Normally, we'd be getting ready for large meals together with our extended family, but aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and grandparents and grandchildren are only able to connect over video chat at this time. This is also a weekend where we normally have an extended break, a, a, a little bit of rest at home from work and from school, and yet work and school for most of us have already come home. This is also a time for our essential workers and our healthcare professionals who are working even more. And we want to know that we love you and we're praying for you and we thank you for the sacrifice and the risk that you are taking each day that you are going to work. Our culture has really been confronted with the reality of death. Death is, is not something that we like to talk about. It's something that we often push to the periphery of our consciousness. We try to avoid it. It's, it's seen in the way our culture tries to limit the appearance or the effects of aging. We use cosmetics to cover up getting older. We try to eat healthy and exercise to somehow prevent or prolong the process of aging. We're not comfortable with death, but the the staggering statistics coming out of Italy and the horrific images in Ecuador are, are ways in which we, we just can't escape this reality that people are dying and that all of us one day will die. One of the things about this virus is that it, it, it is affecting all nations, all cultures, all walks of life and death in general affects all of us. It's the great leveler of all humankind. We've been in a series in our church called Death Defeated. For the last 18 months or so, we've been going through one of the four biographies that are in the New Testament that describe the life of Jesus. And, and most biographies um, end when the subject dies. That, that's when you know you've come to the end of someone's biography, the end of the, of the story. But in Jesus' biographies, it doesn't end with his death. Jesus dies in chapter 19, but in John's gospel, in this biography, there's still a chapter 20 and a chapter 21. In some biographies, you might have a, 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 an afterword or an epilogue or some closing reflections to sort of sum up the person's life. But in most biographies, and just about every biography, the story stops when the person dies. Not so with Jesus of Nazareth. You see, when Jesus died, that was not the end of his story. And I want you to understand that. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is that, is that Jesus' life and his story did not end with his death. And as soon as we understand that, we can learn and embrace. And it can be true of us that our story does not need to end with death. 
And so turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John uh, chapter 20. The story begins with a woman walking in the dark early in the morning. Her name is Mary Magdalene in verse 1, and she comes to the tomb. And uh, Pastor Chris on Good Friday described what these tombs were like, these caves that were carved into the rock with a large stone uh, in front of it. This is the kind of tomb that Jesus was buried in. And she sees in verse 1 that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. You see, Jesus' story is not over. Jesus has defeated death. If you're taking notes today, you can jot this down, that Jesus has conquered the grave. Jesus has conquered the grave. This all happens on the first day of the week. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. We call it Good Friday. In those days, it would have been called the Day of Preparation. Friday was the day to get prepared before Saturday, which was the Sabbath, the day of rest. You got all of your work done on the day of preparation so that you could rest. So Jesus was crucified on the Friday, Saturday went past, the day of rest, and now early on the first day of the week, what we call Sunday, Mary Magdalene and other women, they're not mentioned here in the Gospel of John because the spotlight is on Mary, these other women are now going to the tomb to to complete the burial process, preparing Christ's body for what they thought was going to be a permanent burial. They thought Jesus' story had come to an end. But when they realize that the stone has been rolled away, Mary runs back in verse 2. She ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's the one who is narrating this story. He refers to himself anonymously as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And she says, you can tell she was with other people because She says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice how Mary has already made some conclusions about what has taken place. She's come up with a rational explanation to to describe the the events, what she has witnessed. She has seen that that the tomb has been opened, and so she's using logic, she's using reason, she's using observation, she's using all of the different faculties that, that we would use in trying to describe reality. So she says, someone must have taken the body of Jesus. That's her rational explanation. Now listen, I want you to hear what I'm about to say, and I don't want you to misread me. I am by no means against using logic or reason or science or history in trying to explain the things in our world. But you do need to understand, and I think all of us can get this, that science and reason and logic, as helpful as they are in explaining so many things, cannot explain everything. There are some things in this universe and there are some things that happen in this world that cannot be measured, that cannot be calculated, and they point to the supernatural. And so I'm unashamed to let you know uh, this morning that what we're reading about here in John chapter 20 is something that's incredible. It's unbelievable. It's unexplainable. Dead people don't walk out of the grave. But that is what happened. 
But you need to understand that the original witnesses, none of them came to the tomb expecting Jesus to be risen from the dead. And so if you're watching this today and you're skeptical and you think there must be some sort of other explanation to describe why all the disciples seem to think that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, listen, if that's where you are, I would just ask you to do what, what these people did, to keep investigating. So Mary went to Peter and John, and then they come running in verse 3. Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I guess Peter had a few too many flatbreads during the Seder meal, and he wasn't able to keep up with with John. And John arrived there first. In verse 5 it says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. You see the different personalities. John, obviously, he's faster, but he doesn't, he doesn't go into the tomb at first. But Peter, he's just, he's just a little more uh, impetuous. He, he, he's the kind of guy that says, Jesus, hey, you're walking on the water. Can I come out of the boat and walk on the water too? Or Jesus, all these soldiers are coming to arrest you. I'm going to take up my sword and take them on single-handedly. Peter just charges right into the tomb. They both notice these linen cloths, but when Peter goes in there, he notices something else. He, he notices in verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. Not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up and placed by itself. The tomb is, is tidy, and that's eerie to them at first. They, they, this isn't what they expected. If, if, if someone had taken the body, why would they first take off all of the linen cloths? And then why would they bother to fold it up? John, who had stayed out of the, the tomb, is now, now enters in in verse 8. It says, The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. This word believe is the most important word in John's biography of Jesus. In the 21 chapters, it appears almost a hundred times. You can hardly read a paragraph, even a sentence, without this, this theme of belief occurring in the Gospel of John. And here John shares his own testimony of when he himself believed. Now, in a very simplistic sense, he believed that the tomb was empty. He believed what Mary had told him, but I think he believed something more significant than that. He wouldn't have used this word, this such an, such an important word, to describe what was going on in his heart and mind. John believed that something supernatural had taken place. Again, he didn't have the full picture. He even admits that in verse 9. It says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John hadn't pieced it all together yet, but he knew in that moment that, that something incredible had taken place. He, he references the, the scripture saying that the, the Son of God must die and rise from the dead. You see, as the disciples began to read 
backward into the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus had had taught them before he had ascended to the Father, they began to notice things and see things, certain, certain pictures in the Old Testament, certain patterns, and even, yes, some predictions and prophecies in the Old Testament pointed to the fact that Jesus was going to die and rise again. We, we see pictures like in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham is walking up a mountain with his beloved miracle baby Isaac. His, his son now has grown up, but they're walking up this mountain and Abraham is expecting that Isaac is going to die on this mountain, that he's going to die as a sacrifice. And yet, Abraham walks down the mountain with his son, and his son is still living. The one who was supposed to die as a sacrifice yet remains alive. It's a picture. In the book of Leviticus, which describes all of these religious rituals and and these sacrifices that were supposed to be done at the tabernacle and then at the at the temple as part of Old Testament Jewish religion in Leviticus chapter 16 there's a there's a ceremony called Yom Kippur or the day of atonement and and in this particular sacrifice, it's quite similar to what you would normally expect from an Old Testament sacrifice. You have an animal that is, that is, that is killed, and it, its blood is shed as a, as a substitute. But in this particular festival, in this ritual, something else takes place. It's not just one animal, but it's two. There is one animal that is killed, but another that is to remain alive. And so, and it's called the Day of Atonement. How is their sin going to be covered? This ritual is supposed to be about forgiveness and restoring their relationship with God. And yes, death is required, but also life. So we have these pictures in the Old Testament. We also have these patterns where God's people seemingly on a regular basis are being rescued from from the verge of death. They're they're about to fall into the pit and God reaches down and saves them. We see this for the people in general. We also see it for their rulers, for their kings. David experienced this a number of times and he wrote in Psalm 16 verse 11, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol means the grave. Or let your Holy One see corruption. David could look at many moments in his life. He could look backwards in his life and say, wow, God has rescued me. But David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is also looking forward to one of his descendants, Jesus of Nazareth. That he would not just get close to death, but that he would in fact experience death. He would not just be spared from the grave, but he would go to the grave and conquer it. Jesus conquered the grave. Death has been defeated. And then perhaps most clearly, not just a picture, not just a pattern, but also a prophecy and a prediction is found in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 with eerie clarity. Hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth predicts the the way in which he would die and why he would die. And at the end of this prophecy, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was all part of God's plan. He has put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering, when his life is poured out as an offering, as a sacrifice, when he dies, death will not be the end. The offering is made for guilt. It says, He shall see his offspring 
and he shall prolong his days. This one who is going to die, who is led to the, led to the slaughter like a sheep, he is going to have his days prolonged. It goes on to say that he shall divide his spoil with the strong. This one who is to die it is to be victorious. The spoils of victory are being divided among the strong. It says, because he poured out his soul to devil. Which one is it? How can he be victorious and be, and be receiving all of this spoil of victory and yet also simultaneously being the one who poured out his soul to death? Jesus Christ suffered and died. He poured out his soul to death, but it was also a victory. By dying, he defeated death. So there is something supernatural here. Jesus conquered the grave. Also make note of this, that he calls us by name Verse 10 says, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood, weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. We're told that John believed in this moment, but, but Mary doesn't. Mary doesn't still understand. She's still grieving. She's still weeping. And, and this is encouraging to us. Maybe you have a family member that believes in Jesus and you, you just don't really understand why. Maybe they're sitting right beside you right now. Or maybe you have a friend or a co-worker who sent you this link and you're watching it on your couch right now and you don't understand why this other person believes in Jesus. Well, I would encourage you just to do what Mary is doing. She, she still doesn't understand. She's still grieving. She's still weeping. But she's still exploring. She's still examining. She's still researching. She lingers at the tomb, and that is where she hears God call her name. In verse 12, it says that she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She says the same thing she said to the disciples in verse 2. She is looking for a dead Jesus, someone who's been laid down. That's her explanation for what has taken place. Also notice that she's not taken aback at all with the fact that there's now two angels in the tomb. Peter and John never said anything about no angels when they came out of the tomb. And now there's some angels there. And most people in the Bible, when they encounter angels, they, they're, they're afraid. They're terrified. The first words out of angels' mouths normally is, do not be afraid. But Mary, perhaps that she's, she's so overcome with grief, she can't even, even think or, or fathom really what is taking place here. She sees this, these two angels and she answers their question. She says, I don't know where Jesus' body is. That is why I am weeping. Verse 14 says, Having said this, she turned around and, and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. You see, Mary was looking for a Jesus that was lying down, a Jesus that was dead. She had no category for a Jesus that was standing, for a Jesus that was alive. But this is the Jesus that has appeared to her. There was something about the resurrection body of Jesus Christ that, that at certain times people didn't recognize that it was him. There's some disciples in Luke 24. They're walking along a road. They're on their way to a city called 
Emmaus, and they, they start walking with this stranger, and they, they don't realize until the end of the conversation, all of this time they had been walking with Jesus. And in John 21, the disciples are out in a boat, and someone calls to them from shore, and and it's Jesus, but they don't know that it's him at first. And that's what seems to be happening here as well. Jesus asks her the same question in verse 15. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus is almost lovingly and, and, and in, a sense, in kind of a way playfully drawing her along with, with the question that the angels asked. Why are you weeping? But then, whom are you seeking? Jesus knows who she's seeking. It's almost like he's planned the, the special surprise party for the milestone birthday. And everyone is inside, uh, on the other side of the door, in the room, ready to shout surprise. And Jesus is just delighting in this moment as he's about to open the door and show who he truly is. Whom are you seeking, he asks. Supposing him to be the gardener, it says in verse 15, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where, where you have laid him. Again, there's just so much, so much dramatic irony. There's so much tension building here. But don't miss the fact that she mistook him for the gardener. Pastor Chris mentioned on a Good Friday that the, the important symbolism of gardens in the Bible, particularly at the beginning of the Bible. You see, what we see with the resurrection of Jesus is Jesus beginning to make everything wrong right. And it's happening in a garden. But everything began to fall apart. Everything went wrong in the garden. The first man was a, was a gardener. Before Eve was, was created, God created Adam and put him in the garden, it says, to work it and keep it. And then a partner was created. Adam and Eve were working together in the garden. And in this garden, they were never meant to die. They were meant to live forever. There was a tree in that garden called the tree of life. And they were allowed to eat from that tree. And any tree in the garden... But there was one tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree they were not allowed to eat from. And the serpent slithered into the garden and deceived them and told them that if they were to eat of that fruit, they would become like God. They wouldn't need to follow God's rules. They wouldn't need to look to God for their source of identity and their source of security. They would be able to do things on their own. And Adam and Eve ate from that fruit. And when they ate from that fruit, what they did is they rebelled against God's law and they refused God's love. And that's when death entered into this world. Not just physical death, Adam and Eve both did die, but also a spiritual death. You see, there is a death beyond this death. It's called hell. And there is a life Beyond this life, it's called heaven. And all of that fell apart because of sin. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God's law and refused his 
love. They wanted to do things their own way. That's the essence of what sin is. When we do things, when we say things, when we think things that are sinful, we are rebelling against God's law and refusing his love. It all fell apart in the garden. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. and The land became cursed. And Christ took on that curse. He paid the penalty that all of us deserved. He died that ultimate death on our behalf. And now he, in sort of this act of new creation, he is like the new Adam. This fresh start for all of humanity. He is the new gardener. And he is calling Mary by name. And it's when Mary hears her name spoken by the voice of the Savior, that's when everything changed for her. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Everything changed when Mary heard Jesus call her name. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 3, that the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. I remember when I first heard Jesus call my name. Don't, don't get me wrong, I didn't hear it audibly. I heard it in the same way that, that I, I prayed would happen at the beginning of this message. I heard the Bible being taught. And as I heard the Bible being taught, I could find myself in the story. I could see myself like Adam and Eve, rebelling against God and refusing his love. And in that moment, I recognized, even though I was six years old at the time, I recognized that God had made me, that I was a sinner, and that I needed forgiveness. I heard the voice of my Savior. And like John in the tomb, I didn't have it all figured out. But listen, I believed. Are you hearing his voice speaking to you right now? There's a reason why you're watching this. That, that person that sent you this, this link, that person that in, invited you to join us online for these Easter services, are you listening to his voice? He's calling your name right now now. Then Jesus tells her in verse 17, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now this may sound a little bit at first like, like the social distancing that we're, we're trying to get accustomed to right now. Don't, don't cling to me. Don't, don't get too close. Stay a few meters away please. Pay attention to the tape on the, on the floor. That's really not what's happening here. And Jesus isn't being a super spiritually sensitive here either. He's not saying, touch me not thy unclean woman, because I have not ascended to, to the fall. That's, that's not what he's getting at. You see, Mary has a job to do. Uh, Jesus wants Mary to be, her, to be his mouthpiece. Jesus wants to make it clear to Mary, you know, she was so concerned about finding the body of Jesus and now she has and, and he's alive. And so she wants to cling to him. She wants to hug him. She wants to hold on to him. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to be ascending to the Father. The way that we are going to relate to one another is a whole new way. 
I had talked to you and, 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 and to the disciples about the coming of the Spirit, how he's going to live inside of you now. And I am going to ascend to the Father. And Jesus is also telling Mary, listen, you've got a job to do. I want you to go and share this message. I want you to tell my disciples. But look at how he refers to his disciples. He says in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your father. You see, this is where the supernatural aspect of, of the resurrection and the personal aspect of being called by name, this is where the two things come together. See, Jesus conquered the grave and Jesus calls us by name. But thirdly, make note of this. Jesus considers us family. He considers us family. For the first time, he calls his disciples brothers. And Jesus has said the word Father numerous times, but in a general sense, he said the Father, or he has said my Father, but now he is saying your Father. He calls the disciples brothers. He tells Mary, you're now my sister. We're now part of the same family. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and yet he has made it possible for us to be called sons and daughters. Because Jesus came and died, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but receive the gift of eternal life and would be welcomed into the family of God. This incredible truth John mentioned in the very first chapter of this biography. In John chapter 1 verse 12, Jesus said, But to all who receive him, who believe, there's that key word, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have the, the privilege, the joy of being welcomed into God's family, not just relating to God as our creator, but relating to him as father, part of his family. God did not merely want to save us from the penalty of our sin by by sending his son to die on the cross, he not only wanted to save us, he wanted to, to love us in a loving family relationship. Now, I know when I mention family relationships, I, I, I know that we live in a broken world. And I know that even the best of families are not perfect families. And so whether your upbringing or whether your current family situation or your relationships right now are healthy and strong or whether they are broken in need of healing, we can know that we have a perfect father, a loving Father, and that we, the church, again, we are not perfect, but we are aiming at Hope Church to be a family, to love and relate to one another in this new relationship that Jesus has made possible by conquering the grave. So Mary listens to what Jesus says. She stops clinging to him. And in verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
So G- Jesus gives Mary a mission and she goes and fulfills the mission. She goes and she tells. And this is what all of us who are followers of Jesus have been, we've all been given this mission. We've all been given this privilege to be the mouthpiece of Jesus and to share the message that he is risen from the dead. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you can't understand why your family members or your co-workers or your neighbors just won't stop talking about him, this is why. Because we believe he has conquered death. We, be- we know that he has called us personally by name. And that we're a part of his family. And we want that for you as well. To experience forgiveness. To be welcomed into a family That's what the message of the Bible is about. That's what the message of Easter Sunday is about. That's the message that I hope is not merely being heard in your ears with my voice, but that is being spoken to your heart with the very voice of God, that he would be calling your name. And so as God I I pray has been speaking to you. I want to give all of us right now an opportunity to speak to God. I'm going to pray right now and I would just invite you that if what I'm praying resonates with you, I would invite you to make this prayer your prayer as well. And whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ already, these are great things to pray about and to remind ourselves of. Or whether you aren't a follower of Jesus Christ, this prayer is the the step that you can take to begin that relationship, to, to receive his love and to become part of his family. And so let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we recognize that your spirit is present wherever we may be right now. And Lord, I freely admit and acknowledge that I am a sinner. There are things that I have said. There are things that I have done. There are thoughts that I have entertained, Lord, let alone all of the good deeds that I have neglected to do. I am guilty of sins of commission and sins of omission. And I recognize that my sin is an act of rebellion against your benevolent rulership over my life. I've broken your law and I have refused your love. And God, I believe that Jesus came as God in the flesh. I believe that he is the son of God. I believe that he suffered and died on the cross for me. I believe that he rose again and I believe that he has conquered death and I place my faith in him for the forgiveness of my sins. And Lord, whether for the first time, Lord, or as a a daily act, Lord, of commitment, right now in this moment, I commit to follow you with everything. You sacrificed it all for me. Lord, I will live my life as a daily sacrifice for you and for your glory. God, we pray that you would be at work in our lives, in our church, Lord, in our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.